Okay, so from verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of this body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor, when their eyes is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him." I thought I'd bring a magazine with me this morning in case I got bored by my own sermon. I thought that might be a good idea. I'm not an avid reader of Hello. Anyone here want to confess to that joy and pleasure of reading Hello? I won't tell you who gave me this copy, but I was delighted to receive it because on the front page it mentions Katie Piper on her big day, a new start, I'm so happy, and inside some beautiful pictures of Katie Piper. Many of you will have heard of Katie. Many of you may not have heard of Katie. She's a young woman who went through the trauma and the tragedy of being brutally treated by a man who trapped her in a room and then later on he paid one of his friends to throw acid in her face. She's had uh, many, many, many operations for facial reconstructive surgery and plastic surgery as it's called, and she now runs the Katie Piper Foundation, where she and her foundation are making a huge difference in the lives of those who know the pain and the emotional sadness and trauma of facial disfigurement through burns, scars, birth abnormalities, and so on. But the reason I wanted to hold the magazine up is this. It's in magazines like Hello that you hear all about the romantic version of love. And there's something incredibly special about the romantic version of love when you see beautiful photographs like that. Trust me, as the person who had the privilege of conducting the wedding, because Katie came to faith at Andover Baptist Church where I came from, and standing ringside, as you do as minister, as they expressed that love for each other with a kiss, was an incredibly special 
thing. To hear her give clear testimony to her love of Jesus Christ is also an incredibly special thing. But let me tell you as we explore the call to love today and the fact that we're called to love, that the Bible simply puts it this way, God is love. Amen? And let me tell you in the light of the atrocities that Ross has just led us in prayer about, God is not hate. God is love. And you can argue all the theology you want. You can argue all the claims of additional scriptures that you want. But anyone who claims that God leads them to do the kind of things that happened in Paris, that's not motivated by a God of love. However you look at it, let me just nail that absolutely clearly. The tragedy is, of course, that the church of Jesus Christ over the centuries has often done things in the name of God that completely lacked love. But nevertheless, God is love. And we need to understand this call because when Jesus was asked to sum up all of the law, all of the commandments, everything that God had revealed to his people, the Jews, through Holy Scripture and through the prophets, he put it this way. Before we even get to our text, let me just illustrate that this God who is love says that this is the highest calling. Matthew 22 from verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, he told them, you know neither the power of God nor the word of God. You don't know either. What an offense to them. Jesus offended them. Having heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, first word out of his mouth, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, same word, out of the mouth of Jesus on his lips again, love. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, whatever you've heard from God, about God, it's all about love. Loving God with everything you've got and loving your neighbor as yourself. Wow. And when we come to this penultimate uh, reading from the book of Ephesians, biting off way more each week than any preacher could chew, but that's so we could cover it in the time we have. We're looking at this call to love before Ross next week calls us to prayer from the final message in this book of Ephesians. And when you know what it takes to love the way God wants us to love, it brings you to your knees. So we need to remember that when we go to Ephesians chapter 5, on this particular concept of being called to love, we, we look at the subject divider which puts wives and husbands before verse 22 at our peril because we miss this key verse, verse 21, which says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. It's a mutual submission out of love and out of reverence for Jesus Christ that we see in, in verse 21 of chapter 5. It's a mutual submission out of love and reverence for him. And if I were to ask you, what is the enemy, do you think, of love? You might go for a polar opposite and say, well, that would be hatred, wouldn't it, Clive? Or maybe anger, the kind of anger that was poured out of Kalashnikovs in Paris. Or maybe not hatred or anger, but resentment or unforgiveness, a refusal to forgive someone that's wounded you. I want to say it's all of that, but for me, the enemy of love is pride. 
Because when a beautiful paradise was created, when the world was made, and man and woman were put in a garden, the Garden of Eden, whether you take that as symbolic or literal is not the point, they were given to each other to love each other and to love God. And God would walk in that garden, Eden, with them in the cool of the day. And perhaps one of the most tragic things that's captured in Scripture is where Adam and Eve, at the temptation of Satan, disguised as a serpent, they eat from the one tree they're forbidden to eat from, and suddenly, instead of just loving each other and walking free in their nakedness, they feel guilt and they feel shame, and they hide from each other and they hide from God. And it's just one generation, their children, before the first murder happens. Wow. Wow. And God goes looking. And the one who walks in the garden, for me, well, God is spirit. That has to be Jesus. So Jesus goes looking for Adam and Eve, knowing full well where they are and calling, where are you? Where are you? You know, we've been hiding from God, mankind, men and women, and we've been hiding from each other, in a sense, ever since. But God is calling us out of the bushes and he's calling us to love. He's calling us to love the way he loved because it's his very nature to love. We all need to be loved. Ask any psychologist, ask any sociology, what is one of our greatest needs? And if you know anything about psychology, you might have heard of a guy called Abraham Maslow and his need hierarchy. You know, if we're starving, we need food. If we're thirsty, we need water. If we're cold, we need warmth. But actually, when those things are taken care of, what is the deepest seated need of any human being? It is to love and be loved. And that's because that's the way God is. To love and be loved. So let me, let me hit this principle on the head before we go any further because Paul addresses in verse 21 this deep, powerful, potent, vital principle that we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We need submitted lives and submitted lives flowing out of what we looked at last week, that spirit-filled lives. I don't know about you, but do you find it easy to love everyone you come across? Yeah? It's not, is it? You might be sitting next to someone right now. This is not the time to turn around and look into their eyes. <laughs> Who you really struggle to be with. You know what I mean? It takes God's power, not just God's example, to love. We need, I'm sure that the team in Nepal never had any frustrating, difficult moments. Did you, Andy? No, of course not. You loved each other twee and angelically for the whole time. Well, when I went to, to India with the team, we had some tense moments. Because human beings have their differences and it gets a little bit tense. But if we live lives that are submitted to Christ out of reverence for Christ and lives that are full of the Holy Spirit, if we submit to Jesus, surrender before our Heavenly Father and say, Holy Spirit, fill me, then mutual submission to Jesus our Lord will help us to love effectively. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But don't forget chapter 5 verse 18 from last week. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Keep getting topped up. I hope the image behind helps. I don't know if your tank is full or half full or unempty, but the one thing I can tell you is the God we keep going to is the God who's willing to refill our tank. He's the God who's willing to fill us with His living, loving presence so that we might love more effectively. And wherever we struggle to submit to him, by the way, this Jesus who is our Lord, let's remember, as somebody put it once, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. The one sentence you can't really say with any integrity is, no Lord. 
like Peter on a roof when God is trying to encourage him to love Gentiles, who as a Jew he despises, he says, surely not, Lord. Almost, you must be wrong. What? God? But Peter's wrong. God wants him to love Gentiles as a Jew. Wow. We need to be prayerful. We need to be humble. And we need to be people who are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Remember again those verses from last week at the center of which was that we should go on being filled with the Spirit as we speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I don't know about you, but I need to get to church on Sunday. I need to pray every day of the week so I can live my life for Jesus. Prayerful, humble dependence upon His Holy Spirit. You see, as we surrender and submit to Him, He brings transformation into our lives. And Paul doesn't just leave it there with a kind of cerebral, spiritual principle of mutual submission. Paul makes it deeply practical. So he moves from the principle to the deeply practical, and he looks at three areas of loving, and we're going to look at three areas of loving. We're going to look at the home and marriage. We're going to look at the family, children's and, and children and parents and parenting. We're going to look at the workplace, the extended family, because when Paul addresses masters and slaves, there are principles that we can take right into our workplace as workers and bosses. The New Testament completely, and let me nail this, undermines slavery. And yet, tragically, there are still more slaves in the world today than there's ever been. People being trafficked for sexual purposes. People in bonded slavery. People experiencing horrific things. And yet, God's Word spoke out from the very beginning. Without just putting, slavery is evil, stop it. It undermined it from the word go. I don't have time for that tangent, but please hear me on it. So the first area we're going to look at is loving your spouse. Spirit-filled marriages. And I've used an image there which shows a couple's hands, they're walking in love, hand in hand, and I want you to notice something about their hands. They are wrinkly. Okay? I'm not saying everybody gets better with age and everybody becomes an expert with age, but when you've stuck together a long time and toughed it out, you at the very least get more tolerant of each other. But hopefully you learn how to love through the tough times. Anyone want to know? Perhaps you shouldn't put a hand up to that now. But I chose that image for a reason. Because we need submitted and respectful wives, according to Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Now, this isn't the most politically correct verse of Scripture. As our little puppet didn't like to be told to obey, that he had to obey, actually, many people in our society don't like this kind of uh, scriptural advice that wives should be submitted. But that's because the full context isn't understood. Now, before I go any further to address that, let me say this. We need to remember that church isn't only about family in the nuclear family sense. There are people here in this building today who are single because they've never known the joy and the challenge of being married. There are people here today who are single because they've known the trauma and the heartbreak of losing a loved one. There are people here in the church today who are single because they've known the trauma and the heartbreak of divorce and the last thing they need is to feel beaten up by our brothers and sisters for the fact that their marriage, their love, didn't quite work out the way they'd hoped and longed for. The church needs to be a place where everyone experiences family, where the single, widowed, divorced or married and everyone is supportive of each other but within the marriage there are some guidelines for those who know that place to live. 
And the first one from verses 22 to 24 is that wives should be submitted and respectful to their husbands. Let me read it for you. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now there's a much tougher challenge coming for husbands, but before we get to that, let's drop down to verse 33 where Paul again says, however, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So here's the biblical teaching. Wives must respect their husband and submit to them. But the tougher call is coming, so let's move on to it, and then we'll explain both. Husbands have got to sacrificially love their wives. If we have submitted and respectful wives, the Bible teaches we need sacrificially loving husbands, and the powerful example is Jesus himself. The most powerful parallel you could have, that Jesus is like the bridegroom coming back to claim his bride, the church, and the church is also called, not just the body of Christ, but the bride of Christ on earth. So let's look at verses 25 to 30. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless in the same way in other words in the same way as jesus loved the church husbands you ought to love your wives their wives as their own bodies he who loves himself will love his wife after all no one ever hated his body pause tangent tragedy is there's a lot of people out there who hate their bodies a lot of people tragically out there who are so in emotional turmoil they even cut themselves they self-harm maybe even in this room today there are those people who are so mixed up about how they feel about themselves and the only thing that will set them free and bring them peace is the kind of unconditional love that helps them to even love themselves because some people just don't love themselves you may be struggling with this one right now yourself you can sense the atmosphere but these husbands have got to love their wives the way they should love themselves verse 29 after all no one ever hated his own body but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church for we are members of one body So the example given about how a husband should love his wife is to love her sacrificially. So the wife should be respectful, but not submitted in the sense of suppressed, subjugated, dominated by some guy that thinks he's what it's all about. And I've sat as a minister at weddings, and I've preached as a minister at weddings, where I've seen this verse from Ephesians read about wives submitting their husbands, and I've seen the husbands go, see, I told you so. And then, when it gets a bit later on, if the preacher does it justice and says, Husband, you've got to lay your life down for your wife, the wife just goes, Really? Because these things are not easy to do. But there's this powerful, powerful challenge, this call to love. The husband is called to so love the wife and cherish her that he dies to self and loves her. He overcomes the pride, the enemy of love, and he loves and cherishes her. And that builds a trust in her that when there's a slight difference of opinion, at the end of the day, the wife can say, I see it differently, darling, but you love me. And one of us has got to make a call on it. 
we're struggling to agree, but I'm going to go with your call. And then the first person to put their hand up, if the husband's got it wrong, should be the husband to say, I was wrong, I'm going to try and do better, and I'm so sorry if that hurt you, because I love you. It's that kind of upward spiral stuff, rather than the downward spiral of fractured relationships. And you know, we come back to it this week, I mentioned it last week, we should never be frightened to talk about this in church. There's something else that's addressed here. And it's the special and sacred act of lovemaking. Special and sacred. Not sullied and slutty and dirty, but love, physical love expressed as God intended it between one man and one woman in the ideal for all of their earthly life. And it's quoting straight from Genesis when in verse 31 Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. In the earliest part of the Bible, God makes it very, very clear. Let's read the verse. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. How beautiful. And we ignore this at our peril as church. Let me tell you, to my, to my shame, I've preached once on Song of Songs. Have you read that book recently? Song of Songs. And it's always made out by the preacher to be an allegory of Jesus, the bridegroom's love for his bride, the Christ. And I get that, and I'll make that application, absolutely. But actually, it's Solomon talking about the love that he has for one of his beautiful wives. By the way, he had lots. He wasn't supposed to, but he did. It's a romantic piece. It's quite a racy piece, if I can say that about Scripture. So funny, Ross. There's going to be about 30, 40 people going home to read Song of Songs after this today. But, but I don't know why I talked to you then, Ross. Maybe I shouldn't have done. The, the, the point is, the point is this, if I can get my thread back now. The point is this, is that the church ignores this God-given gift for one man, one woman to cement their love. It's just one way of expressing love, as we'll see, but it's an important way. And at Andover Baptist Church, after that one occasion where I preached on Song of Songs, we're in a series on doing life better with Jesus. And I dared, I asked my elders first, I'm accountable to my elders, do you think I could do a message to finish a series on better lovers? And they said, well, unpack that a bit for us, Clive. So I did, and I preached the text, and I said the kind of things I've just said, but we decided on an evening, on the Sunday evening, we would have an open meeting, open to those who were in love with a view to a permanent relationship, engaged to be married or married. And I thought I'd either get a nasty letter saying, how could you possibly put something like this on at church? Or I might get two or three people turning up, and we had 70 people turning up, some of them bringing their babies in their buggies. And uh, we had a very special occasion where our lead counsellor and myself addressed the biblical and the relational aspects and the physical aspects. And then we had a younger couple, a couple in mid-age and a couple in, in senior age, talking about the gift of lovemaking in those periods of their lives. And it was awesome. Sadly, it's the only time I've done that in 20 years of ministry. If you would like me to do something like that for Muttley, please write on a postcard and let me know. But I want to tell you two things. One, everybody benefited from a biblical view of that kind of sacred gift that God has given us, and marriages were strengthened. There was one other outcome. Of the 70 people that gathered um, many of them were still, shall we say, in their younger years. And ten months to a year later, we had an Andover Baptist Church baby boom. Okay? Because a pastor had dared to air this important subject. 
But let me say before we move on, there are many other ways to show love. Many ways to show love. And if you want help, ask the Christian Resources Project. Ask Mike and his team when they're there. By the way, I I don't want to embarrass Mike and Lynn too much, but could we just give them a warm welcome back, please? They're here amongst us. And if you want to get this book that I'm going to recommend, The Five Love Languages, written by Gary Chapman, it's been turned into many different types of books, but actually some of you will have read this. Anyone read the book by Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages? It's absolutely brilliant. His basic simple principle, I think this was his first book in a series, is this, that we express our love and we feel love in different ways. So for instance... Words of affirmation is one way. Quality time is another way. Receiving gifts is another way. Acts of servants is a further expression of love. And going without saying or explaining physical touch is another way of showing love. Now for many of you, words of affirmation are important. And not just within a marriage, but generally with those you love and who love you, your family, your friends, people that you serve in church with, words of affirmation are very powerful. Mark Twain said this, I can live for two months on a good compliment. Anyone else feel like that? There will be people here who are starved of anyone saying anything nice to you for weeks. That's not the way it should be. But when people love or are in love, one type of love language is to use words of affirmation to build someone up. Quality time is another. Giving someone your undivided attention. I have to confess and repent. I'm not always brilliant at this. With my wife, Marilyn, who I love deeply, and she heard me say this at the 9 o'clock service this morning, there might be times she'll say, Clive, are you listening to me? And I'll go, what, what, what? Yeah, yeah, of course I am. And I've just given myself away that maybe I wasn't listening as intently as I should have done. Listening gives value. Quality time, giving someone your undivided attention. Receiving gifts, symbols of love. Some of you are going to run out of here afterwards and think, well, maybe the Lord wouldn't mind just this once. You're going to go and get a bunch of flowers and take those flowers to someone you love, aren't you? No. Whatever it is, you can find a way through the giving and receiving of gifts to symbolize love. And acts of service, doing something for someone whom you know will be blessed by that something that you do for them. This is love language, and we are called to love, and physical touch speaks for itself. Now, I don't want to lose anyone here as I move on to the second practical area that Paul deals with, loving your children as we look at spirit-filled families, as we look at loving children and children loving and obeying parents, I want to just take a moment to say something. It is so tough. I can't empathize because I've never experienced it, but it is so tough raising children as a single parent. If you're here today and you're a single mum or a single dad, we honor you. Please forgive us if sometimes we don't give you the support and the love that you need. And for any of us here who are feeling challenged on the balcony or downstairs now, that this week we could just make a difference to a single mum or a single dad who's either been widowed or divorced, or for some other reason they find that they're the sole parent, we can do something to make a difference in the life of that family. But having said that, what is addressed here in these first four verses is very, very clearly 
for families where there are parents and children involved. It doesn't specify both, but it talks clearly about fathers. Let's look at what it says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Uh, So do feel free to say to your children, parents, by the way, do you know that if you are a good child, you will live much longer? Now do explain to them, that's not because you're about to terminate them if they're being naughty. But that there's a commandment in God's word that says they'll live long. That it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. There's a promise. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So respectful and obedient children is a given in Scripture. And in another prison letter, Paul wrote Ephesians from prison, open arrest. He also wrote Colossians from there. You'll read almost identical things in Colossians 3.20 to what we've just read from verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. Listen to Colossians 3.20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So there's a commandment there about a long life. And children are commanded to love and respect their parents, and parents their children. But it's not always easy. Let me just uh, read you a couple of stories, some of my favourites. After the christening of his baby brother in church, Jason sobbed all the way home in the car. And his father asked him three times, look, just tell me what's wrong, what's wrong with you, darling? And eventually, through his sobs, he said, that, that preacher, he said he wanted us to be brought up in a Christian home, but I wanted to stay with you and mum, dad. <laughs> Daddy feeling a bit crestfallen. A mother was preparing pancakes for her sons, Kevin and Ryan, free. And the boys began to argue over who'd get the first pancake. And their mother saw the opportunity for one of these moral lessons that we're talking about. If Jesus was sitting here, she said to her boys, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake, I can wait. Kevin turned to his younger brother and said, Ryan, you can be Jesus. A wife had invited some people after church for lunch and she wanted them to have a lovely lunch and at the lunch she, I guess there's a bit of a wanted to impress them with her godly children. So she said, darling Katie, would you give a prayer of thanks for the food we're about to enjoy with, with our lovely friends from church? She said, mummy, I'm a bit shy. She said, no, it's okay, but mummy, I don't really know what to say. Well, just say whatever you've heard me say at mealtime. And she says, okay, and she bows her head and she says, let's pray. And she says, oh God, why did I invite all those horrible people to lunch? You know, that's just kind of the way it goes sometimes, is it? But nevertheless, we are called as parents, those of us who have that privilege, to be encouraging and Christ-like parents. Let's listen to verse 4, back in Ephesians of chapter 6. And we're told fathers particularly, but our puppet helps us to understand, this probably means both, parents and fathers don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Teach them the way Jesus wants it to be. Be called to love and call them to love like him. And in Colossians 3 again, in verse 21, Paul wrote it this way to the church at Colossae. He said, Fathers, don't embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. So don't exasperate them. Don't embitter them. Time of honesty. How many of us went through a time 
when our parents just exasperated and embittered us. They were maybe loving, they maybe did their best, but there were just certain things and certain lines they took that absolutely exasperated us. That's not good for a child. We need to be called to love as parents, not frustrating, not exasperating. You see, children learn what they live. And you've probably heard a poem of that title, which I'm going to read for you again, by a woman called Dorothy Louise Law Nolt, who died in 2005. This poem has been translated into over 35 languages. I don't know what the latest count is, but it's simply called Children Learn What They Live. Listen to it. If you want a copy, you can have one. If a child lives with criticism, he learns to condemn. If a child lives with hostility, he learns to fight. If a child lives with fear, he learns to be apprehensive. If a child lives with pity, he learns to feel sorry for himself. If a child lives with ridicule, he learns to be shy. If a child lives with jealousy, he learns to feel guilt. But if a child lives with tolerance, he learns to be patient. If a child lives with encouragement, he learns to be confident. If a child lives with praise, he learns to be appreciative. If a child lives with acceptance, he learns to love. If a child lives with honesty, he learns what truth is. If a child lives with fairness, he learns justice. If a child lives with security, he learns to have faith in himself and those about him. If a child lives with friendliness, he learns the world is a nice place in which to live. With what is your child living? Wow. Maybe you can relate to the mummy who has put the child to bed early because the child has been very, very naughty. And she says, I don't want to hear another word out of you. You know the scenario? Maybe you've even lived in it. And under 10 minutes later, there's a little voice calling from upstairs. Mummy, 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 be quiet. I told you not to speak. You've gone to bed because you've been naughty. Now be quiet. Five minutes later. Mummy, 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 I'm thirsty. Be quiet. I've told you to be quiet. Five minutes later again. Mummy, mummy, I'm so thirsty. Look, if you say anything else, if I hear another peep out of you, I'm coming up those stairs to smack you. Mummy thinks it's worked. Fifteen minutes later, though. Mummy, 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 when you come up to smack me, can you bring a drink of water with you, please? <laughs> and I wonder how the mum responded at that moment. We've got to move on, so we've got to move to our third practical area because I want to leave us time for sung worship this morning to respond to God because I don't know about you, I need to be filled with this Spirit if I'm going to know this call to love and love the way Jesus wants me to. So the last place is trying to find a way to love your colleagues by, I dare to call it, Spirit-filled workplaces. Now, you can't be responsible for the bosses and workers at your workplace. But you can be responsible for your own heart and you can make sure that you are knowing the call to love and that you are filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can be a beacon of light, you can be a focus of God's love in that workplace. So I don't have time to talk about masters and slaves. Know that the Christian teaching completely undermines slavery. And only as we've slid away from God in the West are we getting more slaves, even in the West, than we've ever seen. But in the workplace, the principle here is hard-working and dedicated workers. We can't escape it. 
verses 5 to 8 of chapter 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Now I hope nobody at work treats you like a slave. But the principle is, obey your bosses with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, do the will of God from your heart. Now, listen, don't misunderstand me. Don't be a doormat to anyone. Don't be a doormat. Don't let people do things which, which rank as injustice or oppression of you. That's not right in the workplace. But it goes on to say, verse 7, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And then it says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. So respectful and obedient children, but hard-working and dedicated workers. Encouraging and Christ-like parenting, but honoring and fair bosses. Colossians 3, 22-25 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. And verse 25, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong and there's no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Many Christian masters liberated and made their slaves free in the time of the early church. And many of those slaves then chose to have their ears pierced and say, this is a sign that although you've set me free, I want to be your bondservant because I love you, master. And sometimes it went even further and the masters adopted the servants or slaves into their own family. That was a huge deal, particularly, for instance, for a Roman. A huge deal. And I want to say this, the front line for all of you good folks, if you're still in work, is in the workplace. Because that's where people will catch a glimpse of Jesus or not. And if you're a boss in the workplace, the way you treat your workers, that will either give them an understanding of what Christians are like, or it won't. We're going to look at this a lot more next year when we look at serving on the front line, but for now... I just need to move to a call. And the call is the call that we've had every single week. The question is, will you answer when God calls you? You see, Heavenly Father calls us to love deeply. And Heavenly Father loves us to call, wants us and loves us to love practically. So we're going to hand back to Ross and to our band now, worship team. And our worship team and Ross will help us in whatever way they feel led to respond to the Lord. But let's help them out. As they come up here, can we stand together? Let's stand together. And let's just quiet our hearts before God. And whether you're on the balcony or whether you're down here, let's enter into that intimate place before the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Maybe we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit afresh today. Maybe there's something we need to repent of. Maybe there's a someone we've just not loved well enough. A child, a husband, a wife, a parent, a friend, a sister, a brother. Or maybe it's just simply that we are so broken because we long to be loved by someone and we are aching with loneliness. Well, you're here in a family. It's a big family. And maybe it's a little bit difficult for you to access that love and support. We're we're a family that breaks into small groups and meets together in places where we can be Jesus to each other. But for now, if any of these things have touched you, let's pray and then let's worship the Lord in spirit and truth. Father, you called us to love and in Jesus Christ you've shown us supreme love. Greater love has no one than this than he lay down his life for his friends. And Father, the Bible says you so loved this world that you gave your one and only Son, Jesus, that whoever puts their trust in him, whoever receives him, whoever loves him, will have eternal life. They won't perish. They'll have eternal life. And Father, we look to that, but we need some help in this life right here, right now. We, we want to respond to the call to love, but some of us are aching with our own lack of love, and some of us are struggling to the people we're supposed to love the most. Father, reach down and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.